Welcome back to Settlement Nation podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Barber, and today we have another installment of your favorite series, Confessions of a Former Defense Attorney, with a brand new guest, James Murphy. But for the purpose of this podcast, we are going by his other name, Jim, from Claggett and Sykes Law Firm out of Nevada. Now, Jim is a plaintiff trial lawyer, but he spent 20 years working as an insurance defense attorney with several prominent defense firms where he handled hundreds of serious injury cases and served as lead counsel in jury and bench trials. Jim has a very deep understanding of the tactics used by insurance companies, uh, bringing a unique perspective to this practice and this episode. And he is here to shed light on defense strategies so that you can secure the justice your clients deserve. So welcome, Jim. Hi, thank you. I am so happy to have you. Uh, for everyone who is new to the podcast or maybe a seasoned listener, I actually met Jim recently at a trial lawyers university event in California. And what is very interesting and different from other people's backgrounds is that Jim actually has a master's degree in United States history, which I put to the test at a dinner where I quizzed him on the American citizenship exam where he passed with flying colors. Um, have you always been a history buff? Yes, I have been. And uh, that was something that I excelled in in school uh, all the way through uh, getting the master's degree at UNLV. And um, can say that some of that knowledge has been replaced uh, after going <laughs> to law school. They sort of beat that out of you. Well, I've never met anyone who could pass the... Uh, I mean, I had to study for everyone who doesn't know. I just studied the citizenship exam. It's like 200 different questions. Jim got them all right without even breaking a sweat. So I was extremely impressed. Um, another thing on this, do you have a favorite historical film? Historical films? Probably um, one of the ones that I've liked the most. And, it, and it's funny, I was just doing a flight uh, back from Japan and uh, landed on one of the many films that are available from United Airlines. And I, I stopped off and uh, watched the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, uh, which which I think probably most of the listeners are familiar with. Uh, that's uh, one there that uh, Spielberg tried really, really hard to get everything as close as he could uh, and make it as accurate as possible. So I enjoy that one. Well, I, it's funny, I was on a United flight the other day and I did see Saving Private Ryan too. And I thought if my flight was longer, I was going to watch it because it's hard once you get started with that film to, to finish it. It, it sucks you in. But it moving, moving on from that. So when you graduated from law school, did you already have some offers from big firms or how did you decide that where that's sort of where you wanted to start? Yeah, the, the history connection um, was important for me. Uh, when I was uh, getting the master's degree, um, there was a gentleman who was several years uh, my senior uh, taking courses in the graduate program at UNLV for uh, U.S. history, uh, and he uh, was an attorney. That's all I knew. And he made a, uh, a letter of recommendation for me to attend the newly opened law school uh, and little did I know that he was a pretty significant figure in uh, the Nevada legal community, which was, it's small now, and it was even smaller then. And uh, that was something that I think was important for me uh, to be admitted to uh, UNLV uh, School of Law. And so later upon 
uh, graduation, it was sort of a natural fit where I could go to work at his firm, which was a Nevada uh, specific or Nevada based uh, insurance defense firm, mm-hmm. um, which which gave me my first job uh, for several years working uh, at his firm. And so from there, you've had a very expansive career working in the defense. But was there, you know, obviously, you got to a point, was there a catalyst? Was there a moment that you remember where you just thought, screw this, like, I don't want to do this anymore? Or was there something that pushed you over the edge or brought you to the to the light side, as some people say? Uh, what was that moment? Or was, it, or was it just a gradual kind of process? It was a, a gradual process where um, I think a number of factors, uh, not one factor being more important than the other, uh, made it such that I wanted to change. Uh, but this year, in fact, next month, I'll be turning 50 and thought that if I was ever going to do another significant career change, it had to be now. Mm-hmm. And I that mean- was probably the biggest one. Also, my wife, who uh, is also an attorney, uh, encouraged me to uh, make make that leap and don't uh, stay stagnant. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great advice for any of our listeners who are maybe um, have been going down the same path as yourself, you know, prior to now, and they think, oh, it's too late to jump ship and try something new. And, you know, it's a testament and happy birthday for next month that you can at any time. And, you know, leading into where we are today, all that amazing experience that you have would only help you exponentially now as a plaintiff trial lawyer. And that's obviously why we have you on Confessions of a Former Defense Attorney, because you today are being able to shed light on a lot of things that will help trial attorneys um, with their practice and kind of figuring out how the defense works and how their mind ticks and some of the tactics they use. So uh, for everyone listening, Jim put together an amazing list of topics for us to cover today, and we're already going to get him back for a part two. So don't feel alarmed that you have to set aside hours of your day. We're going to cover some now and then cover some in the next episode. But I kind of want to start off, Jim, um, you know, with assumptions and assumptions that are made, you know, by the defense regarding the progression progression of injuries. Do you want to kind of go into that a little bit for me? Yes. Um, I think that one of the things that I as a defense attorney and also working with a variety of uh, claims professionals uh, have uh, operated under the belief that injuries will progress in sort of a, a linear fashion where Uh, An individual that's claiming, say, orthopedic injuries arising out of an accident may uh, have the typical course of care and go from, say, less invasive uh, uh, modalities where they're experiencing uh, strain, sprain type of complaints uh, onto something that may be more serious. And if those... uh, Check the box bound. Uh, uh, check the box sorts of uh, indicators aren't met. Then a person uh, that jumps right to say treating with a neurologist or uh, getting uh, interventional pain management care uh, without having a stop somewhere earlier in a less invasive uh, sort of provider uh, may be may be aggressive 
and also looked upon as uh, somebody that that hasn't uh, exhausted all of those non-invasive sorts of mm-hmm. uh, uh, treatment options that they that they typically see uh, when when you're examining the the entire picture of someone's accident related care. And let's talk a little bit about surgical recommendations. You know, how is that viewed from the defense side? Yeah, I think at least in in my jurisdiction, they're they're looked upon with a bit of a jaundiced eye, whereby the the same cast of characters on the on the um, uh, orthopedic surgeon or uh, neurosurgeon side, who are typically working with plaintiffs' attorneys and providing, say, uh, treatment on a lien, uh, would be quick to offer a written surgical recommendation. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of individuals who are authoring the surgical recs um, get uh, a reputation uh, in a particular jurisdiction where uh, experienced defense uh, attorneys and then those adjusters that are also adjusting the claims in your jurisdiction are going to recognize those names. And what I've seen now just in my brief time period here uh, on the plaintiff side, that there there's an, a willingness to think outside the box. Uh, if you have that willingness to think outside the box and work with other providers uh, where possible, you should do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you feel like you're um, using the same uh, doctors and working with them uh, to provide care for uh, your clients, you need to uh, try to break that routine and uh, not put together uh, somebody's uh, care uh, using the same four or five doctors who write the same uh, uh, notes and use the same language in all of their uh, medical uh, charts. In particular, the the language that's used in surgical recommendations. Uh, sometimes you could hold two of them up from uh, two separate individuals uh, that were involved in totally different accidents, uh, different ages, different genders even, and they may read the same because you know that at the end of the day, this doctor's just doing a cut and paste job. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples um, from your time that you could speak about where you know you could see these patterns come up in some of the cases that you had? from maybe doctors that they're being reused over and over again or that type of thing? Well, you just said it. I think I, I can, I can name the doctors and I, <laughs> I shouldn't do that in this case. Exactly. Um, but, 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 but the fact is, is that um, you see the same patterns, you see the same language, you see the same uh, recommendation for surgery on what would arguably not be uh, supportable uh, in in many cases, uh, say a one uh, millimeter disc uh, bulge uh, that that a that a doctor is saying is surgical, and um, you know we would typically uh, say that this doctor, doctor so and so, has never met a non surgical disc, right. and uh, so you 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 want to try to stay away from those wherever possible. Uh, if you feel like you're um, not getting any traction. Uh, with that particular physician in their um, uh, written recommendations for surgery, then you know, break that break that pattern and go in a different direction where possible. That's great advice. Um, and on the topic of assumptions, and to sort of wrap this section up, is there any other 
thoughts or notes or tactics, things that you could share with people that you've seen that you're, you think, you know, as a plaintiff lawyer now, you would choose different paths? Yeah, I think I would stay as far away from uh, certain doctors that um, are being reused repeatedly mm-hmm. in your in your jurisdiction. That to me seems to be uh, something that you would want to <clears throat> stay away from because they have um, maybe a limited shelf life. That's fantastic. So let's move on a little bit to attitudes. Um, and of course, plaintiff attorney attitudes towards adjusters. Do you want to give a little bit of an overview of that and what you've seen? Yeah, I think um, most of your plaintiff's attorneys are going to have a negative attitude toward insurance claims professionals and look upon them as uh, inhuman and people that aren't to be trusted. Um, I think there's probably good reason for that, um, for the simple reason that, you know, there, there may be promises that have been broken. Uh, an insurance adjuster tells you that they'll get back to you and then they, they don't. And that leads that plaintiff attorney to assume that, uh, they're not being, uh, given a fair, uh, uh, shake and being, um, uh, left, uh, sort of out in the cold. And I think that that leads most people to have a negative attitude toward, uh, adjusters. And so consequently, when you, when you interact with them, there may be this tendency to, uh, ramp up the rhetoric and act in such a way that, um, you might feed into, um, uh, a, a sort of downward spiral in mm-hmm. the discourse. Mm. And you did have one of your notes here, you know, in your interactions, what have you seen, um, you know, as we said, you've been on both sides, is there a type of attitude or way that you converse or conduct yourself that you think is more beneficial? Because some people go with the very direct, rough approach, but maybe there's something else that works. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think that for the most part, no matter what background or what job description or what um, assignment that adjuster has, they are always going to have a series of responsibilities that they need to meet in order to do what would be the bare minimum or the bare floor for their work assignment in adjusting that file or that claim. And if you can't even give that adjuster what he or she needs in order to uh, not get fired, um, then you're probably not going to get anywhere and your attitude toward them isn't going to make a bit of difference. Mm -hmm. So when when you're interacting with that individual, recognize that that individual has a um, pretty detailed job description that includes getting recorded statements, for example, uh, dispatching an independent adjuster if they're not going to be the uh, one that's uh, directly involved in conducting an investigation of a loss and getting a report back from that independent adjuster before there could be any real movement uh, in regards to any any negotiation. Mm -hmm. So if they haven't done what they need to do in order to 
build their file and correctly document that file, the 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 demands that you may be making on uh, that adjuster are going to fall on deaf ears. And on that note, which is something that I've always wondered, what is their sort of attitude towards plaintiff attorneys in general? What do they think? Yeah, that I think that that varies depending upon who you are. So if if you are a plaintiff attorney that has uh, dealt with them in the past and you have successfully, uh, say, taken a case to trial against one of that company's insureds and obtained a large verdict, there is going to be a different attitude toward you and your firm uh, than, say, somebody that is an unknown quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, you could you could characterize that that difference. Uh, that difference is one of track record. That's a simple example uh, of an adjuster's attitude that will uh, vary depending upon uh, who that that plaintiff attorney is. If she has gone to trial and been successful, they're going to treat you differently. And is there any examples from your time where you saw this happen, maybe with people's track record of success or, you know, dealing with new new trial attorneys? Yeah, I think I think that adjusters do look you up. Adjusters do try to research you. And in my uh, job duties as defense counsel, when the, when the case would come to me, which is obviously, you know, gone through the claims process and there hasn't been a resolution. So typically the case comes to me uh, if there's a serious time limit demand uh, that the adjuster needs help with or the case goes to suit. Um, they're asking me, hey, what is this uh, plaintiff attorney's reputation in the community? Are they an attorney that takes cases to trial? Or are they not? Mm-hmm. And we want to know that because we take that into account when we're addressing uh, what we need to do in order to to get the file closed. That's actually a really good point, and just completely separate from what we're talking about. But you know, as defense counsel, you would you be researching the trial lawyers, and you probably know ones in the industry that you definitely know that they have a reputation for going to trial versus ones that you know that will settle. I do. And um, I know that just based upon having practiced in one location, one state uh, for my entire career. So I know who the real players are mm-hmm. uh, in the in the plaintiff attorney game. And I know who the people are who uh, have no uh, no equity built up. Uh, and they are individuals that um, run sort of a, a, a mill uh, that don't take cases uh, even beyond uh, filing a complaint. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, there are there are lots of plaintiffs' attorneys that don't even uh, know where the courthouse is, <laughs> and so the insurance professionals that defense counsel will correspond with, the insurance professionals want to know what that plaintiff attorney's reputation is uh, for uh, taking cases to trial. And do they have a significant track record of success? Because they're they're asking you on the pre-printed forms uh, for what we call uh, evals uh, or evaluations. So we have to do, as defense counsel, initial evaluations that contain descriptions of what it's like in that particular venue, what is, as I said, plaintiff's uh, uh, attorney's reputation, 
and then a variety of other things that you're uh, required to analyze and look at so that you can report and they can uh, move that information up the food chain and, and act in such a way that they're uh, doing all sorts of important things. Namely, uh, you know, at the top of that list would be setting the appropriate reserves. Is there an example in your experience where you found out the uh, plan of trial counsel and you thought, oh, no, this is not going to be good for us, or you were surprised, or you thought this is going to be really interesting because I know they're going to take this case to trial? Yeah, I, I used to have a sort of a running joke uh, that if I went up against certain attorneys, I should uh, double my hourly rate. Right. <laughs> Good to know. Well, we always on this on this podcast, we always, um, you know, really push and recommend the listeners to get to trial. And a lot of our uh, top guests that we've had are some of the top trial lawyers like, you know, Nick Rowley and those types of people. And um, so that's great to know because we're always saying, listen, you've got to get the practice in. You have to get the reps in by going and trying cases because that's the only way that you figure out what you're doing, if it's working, if it's not working. But that's the only way to build that reputation, too, that you will do it. And as you've just said, the defense knows if you're someone that doesn't do it. Yes, they they absolutely know. And, and I, I don't want to um, repeat myself, but I think it's important to note that as a defense attorney, your evaluation pre-printed forms specifically ask for that info. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a known factor uh, that insurance companies of all stripes are looking at and taking into account. Fantastic. I love that. Now, moving back to the adjuster, because we're kind of looking at their, you know, archetype right now. And you had a great question, which I love. Are adjusters all created equally? Um, The answer to that is no. (laughs) Um, Simple, simple answer. No, they are not all created equally. And What I mean by that is that depending upon what phase your case that you're advancing may be in, you will not stick with the same adjuster. And as adjusters start out in the industry and then they progress in their careers, they get higher and higher responsibility levels and greater amounts of authority that they have. Uh, So depending upon, I mean, your listeners may be handling uh, smallish cases that uh, would be uh, the kinds of cases uh, that a, what I would refer to as a frontline or new adjuster uh, may be handling because they are relatively low exposure. And those frontline new adjusters are uh, the kinds of adjusters that have the least experience Mm -hmm. and they're probably the most overworked. And so as a result, their level of sophistication and their uh, experience level is is pretty thin. And that's something that you have to, to keep in mind uh, when you're dealing with those individuals. I've even heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, uh, because nobody can really predict the future, but there could be uh, a lot of those jobs in the insurance industry that may be lost to AI. Oh, really? um, where whereby you may be uh, negotiating with or trying to resolve a claim with a bot if the claim is is relatively small and insignificant in the future. So we'll we'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, but as as you can 
readily imagine um, all sorts of introductory or uh, beginning level positions in every industry that's out there is being uh, replaced due to automation. We've seen that in banking. Uh, we've seen that in customer service. Why wouldn't we see that also in the insurance industry? So those those people that are you know last hired are going to be first fired, mm-hmm. and we know that that's probably something that is coming. And so keep in mind that those individuals, those those frontline uh, new adjusters that are adjusting the small uh, PD claims or uh, uh, small BI claims on the personal line side, uh, those those people are looking you know, at maybe even losing their jobs. That, and I mean, I totally agree with you. You see now, I always get fed these ads on Instagram about chat bots or chat GPT for, you know, law and how it can, you know, do small things in your law firm and stuff. So I definitely see that happening. And if it's yeah, not- Yeah, why wouldn't the insurance industry be looking at um, automating that to a degree um, and, and I think that, you know, what we've seen and, and we know for sure is that the insurance industry is always on the cutting edge of, uh, cost reduction. And one of the things that is anybody who runs a business knows that your biggest cost is, is your people. Mm-hmm. And, um, those are the, the sorts of things that you would want to eliminate if we're, if that was possible. And there's a note here too about, you know, how teams that have third party administrators, you know, how are they different to adjusters? Right. So most of my work in the last however many years has been uh, for large uh, corporations, large businesses. And those are what I like to call sophisticated insureds. A sophisticated large insured is going to structure their insurance picture much differently than you or I will when we're shopping for insurance. And one of the things that they they typically uh, employ as a strategy to cut costs for uh, their insurance premiums is to retain some of their uh, exposure, if you will. So a large business or a large corporation uh, may have its insurance kick in after the first million dollars. And so that initial million dollars or initial $250,000, it just all depends. And you can price that differently when uh, you're dealing with a producer. Uh, that, that will be administered like it is a layer of insurance through uh, insurance professionals and businesses like Sedgwick uh, Gallagher Bassett. These are big names that um, your clients are probably familiar with. Excuse me, your listeners are probably familiar with. And those companies are just like uh, insurance companies that employ adjusters. They just have uh, adjusters that administer the claims that are within a self-insured retention for a particular business or or insured. And I can think of tons of examples uh, and they're all household names that that employ this strategy. And and when you're dealing with those kinds of uh, adjusters, they're going to to have a higher level of of sophistication. They, for example, will only adjust those claims uh, against that particular large national insured. 
So a third-party administrator uh, is typically going to employ adjusters and group them together in what are called dedicated teams. A dedicated team may be adjusting claims only against one defendant, and they're doing that uh, regionally, potentially, or uh, they're going to be working uh, uh, on behalf of, say, say, one company only. The reason that's important is that they actually know the business of their insured. They understand if that company that you're suing as a plaintiff's attorney is a rental car business or is a, a, a drugstore or is a chain of retailers or is a fast food uh, uh, establishment or a trucking company, or they understand how that company works on a day-to-day basis. They may even know some of the key employees. They have a different sort of uh, connection with their insured that an average adjuster does not have. Mm-hmm. And um, their reporting requirements are going to be higher and greater. The reason is, is that there's going to be someone like um, a client representative who could be on the client's uh, in-house legal team that's looking at their uh, reporting and is is monitoring or peeking in on the progress of hundreds of claims uh, that are progressing throughout the country uh, against the company. And as a result, they have to do things in a, in a more organized fashion and, and frankly better uh, because they, they just work on one thing. And when you work on one thing only, you get better at it. Mm. And so their, their clients or their insured's expectations are something, something that are going to be uh, paramount uh, at all times uh, because they only have one set of guidelines that they have to adhere to. Well, I hope everyone has been listening intently because this is why we have Jim on. He is just sharing all the the insider scoop from the other side. Now, before we get on to coverage issues, I want to ask you a couple questions about being a new plaintiff attorney. What was the most surprising change or difference other than billable hours uh, that you kind of discovered as you changed Careers, well, not careers, yeah. but sides. I think I think at the firm that I'm with, the firm that I'm uh, now a part of adopts a team approach, and it is what uh, as a team approach, you might imagine um, that that entails a lot of collaboration. So when there's going to be some major step that's taken in a particular file. Uh, because the files that we're working on here are larger and significant loss type claims, um, we're we're taking things incrementally and slowly, and making sure before a move is made that we've thought about it and considered it and kicked it around amongst all of the team members. Mm. Um, when I was working on um, eighty-five files. Uh, for a variety of different uh, defendants uh, that have been sued, um, and I'm I'm expected to generate, um, you know, the billable hours that I have to generate, uh, in addition to all of the other things that I'm required to do. Uh, there isn't time to go and uh, discuss this with 
with individuals. At most, you might stop another attorney uh, on his or her way to, you know, grab lunch or something and have a chat with them for one or two minutes about a particularly thorny issue. Uh, that's not the way that we handle things uh, on this side now. There's meetings that are cooked into uh, the way that a the way that a claim is being handled, uh, where important decisions are being uh, discussed and and thoroughly thought about before uh, any real uh, moves are made, which I think is important. And what have you found to be the most enjoyable or interesting aspect of working on the plaintiff side? Um, recently, I uh, moved uh, to the plaintiff side, as you pointed out, and I've gotten um, some interaction with uh, individual clients uh, that I think has been good uh, for me to continue in this sort of journey that I'm having in adjusting my way of thinking toward um, being a plaintiff's advocate. Mm. And so as a result, when I listen to folks that have uh, suffered a loss, uh, like the loss of a loved one in a trucking accident, and I get to absorb some of the things that they can recall about their their loved one. And I'm thinking in particular about uh, this case that I have right now, uh, sitting with them in their home and listening to their stories about uh, their son who was uh, killed in a, in, a, in a trucking accident, you get to know that individual even though you've never met them. Mm. And um, not that I needed to, but I did visit uh, that individual's uh, uh, cemetery. And, and, you know, it just helps me get in touch with somebody and realize um, that this is something that I'm working on and it's a real uh, important uh, uh, case that I need to uh, think carefully about. Like it goes back to that point that I just made a moment ago about the team approach. If you're if you're making uh, quick decisions that aren't well thought out, there could be implications. And so we're taking it slow. We're understanding what we need to do, and we're making sure that we're uh, doing everything that we can to advance this claim in in a really uh, uh, significant large loss type case. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And, you know, we're going to cover a little bit more of that when we get to the light and dark acts aspects, but we're going to transition now to coverage issues, which I know a lot of the listeners want to hear about. And one of the first questions that I want to ask you is, can a plaintiff lawyer do a better job of understanding coverage nuances that will impact recovery? Absolutely. Um, I think that there are this is just my observation because I have worked uh, directly with insur insurance companies for so long and I've been butting heads with plaintiff's attorneys that come from a lot of different backgrounds and their levels of uh, sophistication, if you will, uh, varies just like uh, the levels of sophistications of the, of, the, of the adjusters we were talking about. Most of your plaintiff's attorneys out there in the universe do not understand uh, uh, the important aspects of insurance coverage and how that uh, governs where a case may go and will impact your recovery. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that there are a lot of uh, plaintiff's attorneys that really grasp uh, that significant aspect of uh, 
litigation, frankly. And let's talk then a little bit about discovering discovery and understanding coverages, because from what you're saying, that people may not be as well versed in this as they should be or could get a lot better at it. Right. And so what I what I was hoping to discuss was a claimant should demand that they be provided evidence of insurance and clearly understand what insurance coverages are available before making any important decisions about resolving a case for a particular dollar figure. And I think this is done where there may be demands for, um, say, declaration pages to be provided. And that typically happens uh, automatically when a case goes to suit because there are uh, self-disclosure requirements. But if you're not emphasizing that uh, heavily and making sure that you understand the insurance picture uh, of a particular defendant before um, making any major decisions in a case, that's that's something that has to be uh, uh, well thought out. Mm-hmm. And honestly, there's a number of things that can arise uh, that make that difficult. And when we speak about layers, you know, why are they so important when we're talking about coverage? Yeah. Um, What I mean by the term layer is a a, a typical sophisticated insured uh, will get coverage through uh, its broker uh, from a variety of companies. uh, And also the insurance is available uh, on the open market and they change all the time. So depending upon um, when a claim has arisen, for example, there may be different coverages that are available. And um, that that disclosure requirement uh, should encompass a full disclosure of all layers of insurance, meaning um, information that you would want to obtain should uh, cover, um, the term would be a tower, um, a tower of insurance coverage uh, could, in some cases, in some of the cases that I've handled, uh, go up to 12, 13, 14 layers. And depending upon the significance of the uh, claim that's being advanced, um, layers one and two may even be exhausted uh, before uh, you can make a decision about how you need to move forward. You need to understand that. Mm-hmm. And this is such an important topic, you know, especially for our listeners, but for all lawyers, you, what other advice or information do you have to share? Because you've spent a lot of time working on that side. I'm sure you, there's so many things we couldn't even cover in one podcast, but you know, if you could speak more on this topic, I think it would really benefit everyone. Right. Um, I think there's, I think there's something that um, may be lost on, on, uh, plaintiff's attorneys when they're making uh, their negotiations and their demands. If you have properly sought out and understood the defense insurance coverage picture, uh, then you could style your demands and style your, say, for example, the service of an offer of judgment and whether to extend out the time limit on that offer of judgment to leave it open, so to speak, uh, while there is consideration of, of, of your, uh, 
uh, settlement overture in such a way that you could encourage layers above uh, the layer that you may be negotiating with to get involved and serve what are called hammer letters on the other insurers and demand that they uh, resolve these cases at the number that you've selected. Mm-hmm. And what I what I mentioned what I mean by that is, for example, uh, let's take the, let's take an example that I had for a national rental car company. Um, that national rental car company retained. Uh, the first $10 million of all risks, uh, meaning that claim, if it was to be resolved uh, and you were going to resolve it for anywhere between $1 and $10 million, that was all coming from that that defendant out of its pocket. It was not coming from an insurer. Uh, yet, when you're making unreasonable demands that uh, are $10 million above that layer, um, there's really nothing that that particular adjuster that's adjusting only for that self-insured layer can do to control that outcome. Then later on, when that uh, tension may be created, you could create tension for the uh, defense uh, and the, the, the layers on up and down that chain by making demands that fall within a particular layer uh, excluding uh, ones above. And you'll start to see uh, finger pointing and hammer letters that that will be uh, served. Uh, basically, that layer that's above uh, the self-insured layer may be writing and saying, you need to go get this done uh, so that our uh, limits aren't implicated uh, now while you have the chance. Mm-hmm. That's super fascinating. And just on a separate topic, but you know, what are some mistakes that you've seen plaintiff attorneys make in this area yourself or just in any area? And as I said, this is not a super long podcast. So there's a whole episode we could do on mistakes that you've seen plaintiff attorneys make over your career. But maybe in this area, is there something that you've seen people um, do that now you can kind of look at it and say, this is not the right way to maybe approach it? Yeah. Um, as, as most of your listeners probably have seen or experienced, there will be an, an, a, on a long drawn out claim, there will be a number of different instances in which settlement may be at hand. And when those demands don't fall uh, in a way that can trigger um, the, the key decision makers uh, with the ability to resolve your claim, um, then there's really no choice, is there? So I'm thinking, you know, there may be there may be layers of uh, coverage that's available, and oftentimes those layers that are above uh, that that primary layer may retain their own defense counsel. I've been I've been retained in a number of instances by separate insurers, ones that aren't really uh, footing the bill for any of the defense costs, and they're just there for purposes of evaluating. Uh, whether the exposure may may run into or exceed the primary layer. And um, those people um, may be the ones writing the hammer letters or, for example, advising uh, those, those uh, carriers to get aggressive against their insured. And if you're not thinking al- along those lines, then you're not giving them the in- anything to discuss. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. I, I saw that. I saw that mistake made. 
uh, by a plaintiff's attorney um, in failing to ever make any demand that fell within uh, that primary layer. And so therefore, there was never a discussion uh, that needed to be had. Um, and because that primary layer never valued that claim uh, that high, they could, they're holding all the cards. Um, there's no contribution that has to be made by the layers above uh, if the one below is not uh, tapped or exhausted. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, now, on to our next topic, which we're getting so close to the end, so which I'm really actually happy that we have so much to cover in the next episode. So everyone, you know, this is not the end, you know, forever. We're coming back. But you spoke a little bit about this before, saying you had a story going to um, the cemetery and speaking to, a, uh, you know, client's family you're now on this side and you're seeing that human element. Um, but the question, you know, between that black and white light and dark, do you want to talk a little bit, a little bit about that and in, in towards attitudes of, you know, what plaintiff attorneys think of the defense and vice versa? Right. Um, I think I've heard it now more times than I've ever heard it in my career, just in 2023, since I changed sides, I heard it from you the very first time that we met at that dinner um, hey, you're now on the light side uh, and you're not on the, the dark side, almost like Star Wars, <laughs> yeah. uh, with, you know, uh, the, the, the dark side of the force and all that. And I just um, I think I think in many ways there there is something to that. Obviously, when uh, insurance companies uh, are making their uh, claims handling decisions, they're doing so. Uh, in a way that they uh, are trying to maximize profits. And that I'm not going to sugarcoat uh, by, by telling you that there's some uh, altruistic motives on the part of insurance adjusters to, to throw money around uh, just because they, they feel bad for uh, an injured party. Um, in Nevada and probably in most states, there's no um, concept of third party bad faith. And so I, as an insurance adjuster, don't owe you squat. Uh, if you're a claimant, uh, suing my insured there's, and there's, there's no duty owed, uh, other than to adjust the claim according to the regulations. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, I think I've had a number of different uh, moments in my career as a defense counsel uh, that are that are similar to the sorts of things that I've uh, done just recently with visiting with my clients, uh, uh, family members that are left behind after they've uh, been killed in a horrific accident. I've had um, you know significant uh, interactions with uh, individuals that I'm representing, and my duty runs to them, not to the insurer. Uh, that is hiring me and paying my bills as a defense attorney. My obligations are to my clients and those people are real and they have emotions associated with uh, having been sued and named in a lawsuit. For a lot of them, this is the very first time that they've had any interaction with the legal system, with a lawyer, and they are just as scared and confused as um, the typical plaintiff may be who's looking to get redressed for their personal injuries. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I've, I've had some uh, moments that, that have stuck with me 
uh, and, and still will continue to stick with me, um, trying to help people through a difficult patch uh, that they're in when they find themselves on the wrong side of a lawsuit. And you put a really good point here, too, that, and I'm not a lawyer, but possibly from the plaintiff side, there could be an assumption that, you know, they're the only side um, with emotion because, you know, they've been injured, they've been hurt, and the other side is a corporation. It's very black and white for them, and it doesn't matter. But you've been on that side. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there, um, as, as I just mentioned, there are plenty of individuals that are that are sued. Now, maybe they're being sued because a plaintiff's attorney wants to defeat diversity. A plaintiff's attorney needs to impute a driver's wrongful conduct to uh, that driver's employer uh, through a respondeat superior claim or something like that. And that's why they've named uh, that individual as a defendant. But uh, let me just say, when you have to represent them and um, you're answering their questions and they're coming to you because you're their lawyer and that you need to answer their questions because they're scared about what does this mean for me? Am I going to lose my kid's college fund because I've been sued now? Um, and you have to answer their questions. There's emotions there uh, that are running hot. And oftentimes that is something that uh, is, is a factor in the way that the case will proceed. Uh, you just don't know it because you're not looking at it. You're not in those meetings if you're the plaintiff's attorney. Um, you're, you're having similar meetings on, on, on your side uh, of the V and working with your uh, clients that are seeking redress for their uh, injuries that they've suffered. And, you know, there's, I think, a, an incorrect assumption on the part of plaintiff's attorneys to take uh, a position that they're taking and think that there's uh, a void of emotions on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of on this topic, just now that you've been on both sides and you can look at it from the plaintiff side, do you think, well, there probably are, what are some misconceptions that plaintiff lawyers have about the defense? Um, the, well, I guess, I guess that there is always going to be um, lack of willingness to fairly resolve a claim. And, what I can tell you is that um, as a defense attorney, what you're doing, number one, is analyzing risk. And number two, you're arguing with plaintiff's attorneys. But the, but the fact is, is that, you know, you need, to, you need to report, report, report as a defense counsel. And you're going to analyze, you know, worst case scenarios and make sure that, you know, you bring an umbrella and it won't rain. And that's one of the things that I took pride in uh, was almost over-reporting. And when you're doing that, you're giving everybody the information that they need to make informed decisions. And as a result, you can reach a fair resolution. And so that's what I'm uh, emphasizing as a defense attorney. Now, are, are, is everybody doing that? No. Um, probably there's a, a fair amount of defense counsel out there that um, don't take their job seriously, or they're just doing the bare minimum in order to get by. Um, but, but that's not, uh, ones that we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So we're going to finish with two questions and we're going to leave all the rest of the juicy stuff for our next episode, which for everyone, we have mediation strategies and demands coming up on the second part of this episode, which is going to be very exciting. 
But Jim, um, kind of to finish, what is one, and this might be a bit hard, so I apologize in advance. What's one piece of advice that you could give as a former defense attorney to maybe new or seasoned plaintiff attorneys uh, that you think you should leave them with today? Um, I think what I would do is suggest to plaintiff's attorneys that they adequately prepare their clients for a deposition. If the case is in suit, you're probably never going to resolve a case uh, if there's any question about the validity of, uh, say, the liability picture, or there's some question on someone's injuries that they're presenting uh, without having your client deposed. And my advice would be to take a long time to prepare your client for his or her deposition. And when I when I started this job, I thought I knew how to prepare somebody uh, for a deposition. I have been involved in hundreds. Uh, and let me just say that it is a different game uh, on the plaintiff side. And you need to be taking a long time in order to prepare those individuals for the kinds of questions that they're going to face in, in deposition. And uh, I think mock depositions are probably uh, uh, not out of the question if you have any case that you think uh, you would want to get a decent recovery on. I think that's a great topic, and we should definitely add that to our part two of this episode because uh, that is very, very important. And our la- and the last question, and this is going to be funny because normally I'm asking this question to plaintiff attorneys who have been plaintiff attorneys their whole career. It's going to be different asking someone who was a defense attorney, now a plaintiff attorney. What is one thing you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? Uh, I would say I wish I knew to switch to the plaintiff side <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> because um, I would have uh, less of the minutia uh, to concern myself with. Um, we're not really looking at the minutia necessarily. We're looking big picture and trying to get that uh, case uh, to the finish line with as you know a maximum amount of recovery as possible, and that's one of the things that um, I wish I knew because you know I wouldn't have uh, been sweating the small stuff. I love that. So for people listening, how can they get in touch with you, work with you? Maybe they have some questions after this, and they think, you know what, there is an expert that I can reach out to that can help me. How do they do that? Yeah, I would say just shoot me an email. It's Jim, J-I-M, at symbol, claggettlaw.com, C-L-A-G-G-E-T-T.com, excuse me, C-L-A-G-G-E-T-T-law.com. And I'll encourage people to just shoot me an email because I'm always on there. And I'd love to hear from uh, folks that uh, may have... Uh, insurance questions, uh, particularly on some thorny issue of coverage, uh, because that's kind of um, what what excites me. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd like that, and would would love to hear from folks if they're um, out there and and struggling. I love that, and 
We are so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Jim, for your time. And these are the fun things that you get to do now. You're on the plaintiff side. I won't say the light side because we did cover that, but on the on the plaintiff side, and we're definitely going to have you back for part two where we can cover all the stuff we didn't get to cover today, which is a lot. So thank you to all of our listeners. I know you're going to love this episode. This is now our part five of Confessions of a Former Defense Attorney. We're going to go into part six very soon. But thank you once again, Jim. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me.